Good morning. Uh, just be great if you could uh, leave your Bibles open to Exodus uh, chapter 3 and we'll uh, quickly work through the text. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we thank you as we uh, face the difficulties of life and as we uh, think about some, the sometimes overwhelming forces at work in this world that we would remember again uh, who you are and uh, what your purpose for us is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's always amusing to me listening to school teachers talk about names that, that they will never call their own children. Some teachers have been put off names by the behaviour of children in their classes with those names. I was talking to one teacher and he was telling me that earlier on in his career it would always be one or two kids that would cause him to wake up at 4am agitated about having to go to school that day. For some teachers, certain names get branded with a certain reputation and the very sound of that name causes distress or some, in some cases delight. And this is an important idea, especially in Middle Eastern culture, the idea of a name or reputation. But even in our our culture, we have this idea to some extent with the idea that certain businesses have a certain name. So McDonald's has been working hard over the last few years to change their reputation. Most people think Macca's equals junk food. But they want people to start thinking that it's actually a, a healthy alternative and it's a bit more sophisticated. Now, whether they've succeeded in that all is uh, up to you. I personally don't think they have. I just went to a funeral of an 86-year-old recently who used to say to his wife, I'm just going down to the health food shop, <laughs> meaning McDonald's. <laughs> But what we will see in this passage is that the exodus from Egypt is fundamental in establishing the reputation or the name of God. How can we know what God is like and what his reputation is? Well, it's by what he does, how he responds to certain situations. And the exodus is fundamental in establishing the reputation of God. And a long time ago, when we looked at chapters 1 and 2, what we saw was that the beginning chapters of Exodus, we saw this inseparable link to Genesis as a continuation and fulfilment of God's covenant with Abraham, which included many descendants, the land, and blessing. In fact, the first five books of the Old Testament, called the Pentateuch, are very interwoven. In this regard, we also saw a strong link to creation where Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was directly opposing God's purposes for creation, which will now be focused primarily through Israel. God's purposes that humanity should rule his creation under his rule and live together in loving relationships will now be expressed primarily through Israel in the Promised Land. 
See, the problem is, of course, that even though Pharaoh's plans to stop Israel multiplying have failed, Israel are still in Egypt. They are still in the harsh and bitter service of another king. And if we quickly uh, look back to chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, we can see, though, that now God is about to act in a decisive way. Another king of Egypt has died, and the real king is about to make himself known. And initially, this involves calling Moses to be the instrument of his glory. So what we see in uh, the first 10 verses of chapter 3 is that God's readiness to act decisively to deal with Israel's situation of enslavement involves appearing to Moses in a not-burning bush. And the first thing we need to notice, verse 1, is where Moses is. He's in the wilderness near Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. See, the wilderness is important in the way that this account unfolds because it forms a contrast with where God's people should be, which is a land flowing with milk and honey. And Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai is the place where God will meet with his people when he brings them out of slavery. In the ancient world, mountains were considered places where heaven and earth met. So Mount Athens, or in Athens, Mount Olympus is often referred to as the home of the gods in Greek mythology. See, God is accommodating himself here to human culture to reveal himself as the true God. And what we also notice is what happened to Moses is a pattern of what will happen to Israel. They will flee Egypt to meet God at this mountain. And of course, Moses meets God at this uh, stage in a not-burning bush that is on fire. Because often the presence of God in the Old Testament is associated with fire. And what we need to notice about this is that this strange phenomena that Moses sees is described as the angel of the Lord appearing to Moses. But if you look at verse 6, we see actually Moses is afraid to look at God. See, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament seems to be a way of talking about a revelation or manifestation of God himself. But we shouldn't understand this to be Jesus because when Jesus comes, it is something completely new. And what we also notice, verse 5, is this important idea of holy ground. Holy ground is like a space or area that God is uniquely able to occupy. It's a place where his presence is. The Garden of Eden was holy ground. And God brought man to himself in this holy place. That is why Adam and Eve were kicked out when they sinned. Because they're no longer fit to be in such a place that God is. 
And as we move on in Exodus, we'll see that this is a vitally important theme. How can sinful people, defiled by their wickedness, live in proximity to God without God breaking out against them? So Moses here, even Moses must keep his distance. And God introduces himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, verse 6. And you may remember Jesus used this verse, didn't he, when talking to the Sadducees. The Sadducees don't believe in or didn't believe in the resurrection. And so Jesus made the point to them that this verse doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. It says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Even today I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And he's now coming down to bring their descendants up from uh, slavery in Egypt to this promised land. That is the holy place where he will live with his people and rule over them. But what we have from now on, from verse 11 in chapter 3 to the middle of chapter 4, are various objections by Moses to this plan, or more importantly to his involvement in that plan. He's basically saying, look, I shouldn't be the one to do this. I don't want this job and I'm not qualified to do it. So we see his first objection, verse 11. And Moses is right to ask this question. He says, well, who am I to go to Pharaoh, the king of the world's superpower, considered to be a god? Who am I to go to him to bring the Israelites out? Good question. Because last time Moses did attempt to do something like that, he ended up killing an Egyptian and fleeing to Midian. So his first attempt at this ministry didn't go well. So Moses is right to object, who am I to do this? This is an overwhelming task. But then he's reminded, well, the real issue, Moses, isn't who you are. The real issue is who I am. And we see this verse 12. The sign that God will give him, or that God will be with him, is that the people will be at this mountain to serve God instead of their current situation of harsh service to Pharaoh. So Moses' next objection, verse 13, which is, if Israel ask your name, what will I say? Now, it's probably intuitively obvious that this means more than what shall we call you. That's not what Moses is asking here. The idea of a name in this context is basically the question, who are you? What are you like? What are you capable of? What can you do? What is your character? And as we saw in the introduction, we still use this idea a bit. Some people have a certain reputation. I was 
always told as a kid, a good reputation is hard to get and easy to lose. So Moses is asking, well, actually, who are you? Can you even do this? So if we look at verses 14 to 16, we can see that the name that will be associated with God's reputation and character, and it's a very strange name, isn't it? It's basically the verb to be. I am. I am who I am, or I am where I am. Or for short, I am. The idea here is that he exists in a way that no one or nothing else does. If you think about this carefully, your existence depends on something else. If certain things were taken away from us, that's it for us. We can't exist. It's everything we have and our very life has been given to us. You didn't determine to exist yourself. But God does exist in himself. He is. The gods of Egypt will be shown to be nothing in contrast to the God who is. In our English Bibles, this name of God is usually represented by the word Lord in small capitals. And most people who study Hebrew say this probably should be pronounced Yahweh rather than the older Jehovah. And the rest of this chapter anticipates what he will do to establish his reputation, the reputation that will be associated with the name Yahweh. So firstly, verses 16 and 17, he's the God who keeps his promises. He's already told Abraham many centuries before this what he's going to do. Now he's going to do it. He's the God who makes covenants with people. That is a relational contract, similar to our marriage. A relational contract where certain obligations are put on both parties. He makes covenants with people and keeps covenants. He is utterly faithful to his covenant promises, unlike us. He will do what he promised Abraham he would do. We also see verse 17, he's the God who removes wicked people, unholy people, to establish his own people in a a place of abundance and blessing. We also see verse 19 that he's in charge of all circumstances and governs all circumstances, including the unwillingness of Pharaoh. See, God God is so sovereign that he's sovereign over human wickedness. God didn't force Pharaoh to do what he did. God didn't twist Pharaoh's arm and say, you must behave in this evil way. Pharaoh did that all by himself, of his own character and reputation. But such is God's sovereignty that God governs that in such a way to achieve his own good purposes. 
And verse 22 is the God who uses unlikely people to achieve extraordinary things. This is almost, if you're an Egyptian at this point reading this, this is actually insulting. Basically, a bunch of women who never go to war in ancient times are going to walk out of your country as the world superpower with a bunch of your gold and silver while they sit back and watch. God will cause Egypt to be plundered by women. See, it's really the whole book of Exodus that teaches us about the name or reputation and character of Yahweh. So Moses' problem of who am I to do this isn't a problem, is it? Because I am who I am is going with him. The next objection of Moses to God's plan, chapter 4, verse 1, is that Israel won't believe him. Well, he's got a point. And in hindsight, Moses is again correct to worry about this. (laughs) If we look throughout the rest of Scripture, this concern will arise again and again and again. See, many of those sent by God to speak and call them back to himself, they were persecuted and not believed. Sometimes killed. So Moses, verse 3, is given signs to do to convince Israel that God sent him. And it's important important to note here that these signs aren't uh, given to prove God's existence but to show that God appeared to Moses. And these signs aren't arbitrary or random signs. They are are to demonstrate to some degree the nature of Yahweh and his coming victory over Egypt. See, the serpent, which his staff turned into, was an emblem used by pharaohs on their garments to represent their power. And the word for serpent here is an unusual one and is actually the same word as for the serpent in the Garden of Eden. God is in charge over evil. He will triumph over evil. See, Pharaoh is nothing to God. The might of Egypt is nothing to God. The leprous hand that Moses put in and out of his cloak is probably a representation of Israel's current situation of uncleanness under foreign slavery. And God's about to change that. God's about to take his holy people and put them in his holy land. And the Nile River as a source of life to Egypt will be turned over to death. So the purpose of the signs here is is to confirm the legitimacy of the messenger. And the signs are related very specifically to what God is about to do. And Moses, but Moses' excuses continues, now chapter 4 verse 10. Now I'm not a good speaker. He's literally heavy of speech or heavy of lips. And Yahweh 
reminds Moses of who he has just revealed himself to be. He's the one who enables speech, enables people to walk. He can certainly teach Moses what he needs to say. See, again, it's not about human adequacy. It's about Yahweh's adequacy. And verse 13, he just gives up and says, look, send someone else. I'm not, I don't want to do this. And then God gets angry. There's a lot of use of human features to describe God in Exodus. God's hand, he comes down, he gets angry. Again, this is God in accommodating himself to us to enable us to know him by some extent through our own experiences. Obviously, God's anger and ours are not exactly the same because usually ours is sinfully motivated. But there is enough similarity that comparison can be made. God responds to people relationally in ways that we understand from our own experiences. God is angry at Moses here for his unbelief and unwillingness to get on board with this great thing he's about to do. Moses is saying, look, I don't want to engage with what you're on about. Just leave me to my quiet life, shepherding in the Midian desert, because doing this will be very difficult. I don't want to do it. And the, 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 for us, the coming of Jesus intensifies this, doesn't it? See, we, we, we really forget this these days, but remember Jesus said, whoever loves their life will lose it. You won't be able to keep it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. We'll find it. There is no future outside the kingdom of God. There wasn't for Moses, there's not for us. So verse 16, we get a bit of the extraordinary glimpse Moses will play. God concedes to allow Aaron to be part of this, but God says to Moses, you will be as God to Aaron. Now, there are many themes in Exodus that work themselves out in the New Testament. Perhaps the most important one in this passage is the idea of the name of God. If we were to look at uh, Isaiah chapters 40 to 55, those chapters in the Bible are addressed to Israel, now a long time in the future, but now they've been exiled in Babylon for centuries of covenant failure. The southern tribes labelled Judah have been taken to Babylon for 70 years as punishment for centuries of disobedience to Yahweh in the promised land. Isaiah is promising that there will be a deliverance from Babylon back to Jerusalem and this return will be like a glorious new exodus, like the original exodus that we're reading about now. So in Isaiah chapter 43, God reminds the people in Babylon of this name, Yahweh, I am. Egypt wasn't a problem, Babylon's not a problem. 
But the problem was the exile didn't change anything in Israel. Israel were the same Israel as before the exile. It didn't turn them around. Israel continued to disobey the covenant even after returning from exile. So by the time of Jesus, there were many people who Jesus described as honouring God with their lips, but whose hearts were far from him. So if we turn to John chapter 8, we can see this exemplified in an argument between Jesus and the Jewish rulers. John chapter 8, verses 48 onwards. And it says this, The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honour my father, and you dishonour me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What we need to see here is that Jesus calls himself, I am, blatantly. In front of his Jewish audience, he describes himself as the one who revealed himself to Moses. That's why they pick up stones to stone him. Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh. And he has come to save people properly. Not from Egypt or Babylon or the Romans, but from sin and death. If you want to see the full expression of the Lord's name, look at Jesus. If you want to know the character and reputation of God in an ultimate sense, then you need to know the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus did come, like at the time of the Exodus, many didn't see that he was who he said he was in spite of the incredible signs that he did. Will we believe that Jesus is Yahweh come to save his people? And if we believe it, will it manifest in trusting trusting ourselves to him that we will do what he said and commit ourselves to him in love and obedience?
Israel believed Moses, apparently, but then at the smallest obstacle, they quickly turned back. In John's Gospel, many people believed in Jesus and then they turned back because he wasn't the God that they wanted, but he is the God that is. We are challenged to believe that in Jesus, God has made himself known and completed establishing his reputation and character in him. If this is true, it requires the response of committing ourselves to his agenda and not our own wandering desires and misguided idolatries. See, if this is all true, the Australian ideal of living a peaceful, self-orientated life by keeping our head down and avoiding mentioning the gospel is wrong. It's just wrong. See, we can fully engage the purposes of Jesus because God's reputation and character are fully bound up with him. It's either true and deserves our full attention or it's just simply not true and we should hide away from trouble, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. See, we can make excuses for our poor priorities and flawed characters and unwillingness to engage but the challenge that is before us here is how do these excuses sound in view of the glorious reputation of the Lord ultimately expressed in his glorious son. I guess you could boil this all down to asking the question, what is his name worth? Let me uh, pray for us. Father, we thank you that you uh, have revealed your character and purpose and nature Uh, at this point in this passage primarily through the Exodus event where you gloriously saved your enslaved people by triumphing over the apparent might of Egypt and uh, delivering your people through human weakness and hesitancy. Uh, We thank you that in a similar way you've ultimately saved your people through the humiliating and shameful death of the Lord Jesus Christ on a cross. Uh, help us to get on board with what you're doing, to, uh, to know you, to know you by what you do and how you've done it. And uh, we pray this for the sake and glory of Jesus. Amen.